text for the sermon this morning comes from Psalm 9. We'll continue to work through the book of Psalms each month in a new psalm. And this month in September, we're going to be spending time in Psalm 9 and considering the Word of God and the comfort that we find in Psalm 9 as believers. This is God's holy, inspired Word. Let's turn our hearts to it. To the chief musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, a psalm of David. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise. In the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. The net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditation. Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. The needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. As we sang and considered Psalm 8 last last month, we spent a lot of time focusing on that phrase in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? God who is resilient in his splendor and glory, God who is infinite in his greatness, remembers his creation. He is mindful of sinful man whose life is like a vapor, whose days are like the grass of the field, who came from dust and will return to dust. As David looked up at the nighttime sky with the countless stars all flickering in the background, he was humbled to consider the wonderful truth that God is mindful of man. 
There's something else we can glean from Psalm 8. The word mindful can also be translated as remember. And this would render Psalm 8 verse 4 as, What is man that you remember him, and the son of man that you visit him? This is striking for us to consider because it is the same word we see in Psalm 9 verse 12, which says, When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. In other words, Psalm 9 is more specific than Psalm 8 and tells us exactly who it is who the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. He specifically remembers the most vulnerable members of the human race. He remembers the cries of the humble. As I've talked with some of you, you've spoken to the hurt that there is when people forget you. Some of you have even described this in terms of fear. You have a fear that your own family will forget you. That your church family will forget you. Even that God might forget you. Yet the Lord will ever remember. The Lord will always be mindful of his people. The Lord always visits them in their distress. The Lord will remember the cries of the needy. And that God remembers is one of the most beautiful themes that we find throughout Scripture. It does not imply that God has somehow forgotten his people that he needs to remember does not imply that we have uh, an absent-minded God or, or that God has a type of divine amnesia. Instead, this word, remember, when applied to the Godhead, is a statement that God uses so that we might under, understand an aspect of His grace and His mercy towards us. For us, as those created after the image of God, we know the immense comfort and joy there is when someone remembers us, who we initially thought had forgotten about us. We know the comfort it is for someone to come alongside of us in our distress and speak words of comfort to us. And when Scripture speaks about God remembering God is is using this anthropomorphic term to speak of his particular and tender care for his people. The first time in Scripture that this phrase is used is actually in the context of the greatest judgment that has ever been brought upon the world. After the flood killed every living thing on the earth, Noah and his family could have thought that God had forgotten them. Genesis 8 verse 1 opens with that beautiful phrase, Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. In Exodus 2 verse 24, When Israel was in Egypt, during the cruel slavery that they were under, by the Egyptians, and during that severe oppression, 
We read, so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. One other text I want to bring to your attention is Jeremiah 31, verse 20. Jeremiah has brought many words of condemnation upon Ephraim for their rejection of God. Yet, what does the Lord say to Ephraim? He asks, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. So we see that this is indeed a beautiful theme woven throughout Scripture that the Lord does indeed remember. One of the greatest gospel comforts we see over and over and over again in Scripture are those three simple words, and God remembered. And it is a gospel comfort for those who are oppressed, for those who feel all alone in this life, for those who struggle to see the compassion and mercy of God in their sins. So, God's Word calls you this morning to meditate upon this truth that God remembers, that God remembers those who are oppressed. In our series through the book of Acts, we have been considering the persecuted church. Another way we could put that is as we are considering the early church as it is enduring the oppression of wicked men. We've seen the Jews stone Stephen. We saw how he was oppressed by the Jews in their hatred of God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In coming weeks, we are going to consider how persecution scatters the church, how it divides family member from family member, how it divides friend from friends. As such, persecution is a lonely experience. For those of you who have undergone persecution, you can relate to this. You have experienced such loneliness. Perhaps you, because of your faith, have been abandoned by members of your family. Your son and your daughter have departed from the faith and are at odds with you. Perhaps your parents no longer talk to you since you expressed faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe your co-workers treat you differently now that they know that you are a Christian. If any of that describes your situation, then this psalm is for you. It is to be a comfort for you. And this psalm is also for those who have undergone other trials. Is for those who have experienced great wickedness at the hands of ungodly men. It's for those who have been abused. It's for those who have experienced injustice. And notice the language that David uses in this psalm. He says in verse 9, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. 
The word for oppressed here has the idea of those who have been crushed, of those who are in destitute misery, of those who feel as though they are crumbling under the pressure of what is happening to them. Maybe you've endured the attacks of the wicked. Perhaps you've tried to endure such attacks in your own strength. You've placed your your shield of of self-confidence or your buckler of intelligence over your head to protect yourself from the arrows that the wicked are raining down upon you. With each arrow that has been shot, that shield or buckler has cracked. And it's started to weigh you down with each and every blow. And soon, that own shield that you've placed over your head is now also being used as an instrument to crush you. It has not helped you deal with the oppression that you are experiencing at the hands of wicked men. It has made you feel even more oppressed. And you start running as a desperate attempt to get away from the wicked. The psalm is for those who feel like running. Sometimes the events of this life are, are so horrible that the only option that feels safe is just to run from it all. We run inwardly to ourselves because it does not feel like we can trust anybody else. People have harmed us in such ways that we don't think we can trust anybody ever again. But David, in this psalm, encourages you not to run to yourself, but instead to run to the Lord. Our text says the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. And that word refuge has the idea of a high tower or a high place. It's a place you run to when you are afraid. Children, it's like that those tall castle towers that you read of in the storybooks. Those castle towers that when the enemy comes and attacks a, a particular region, well, everybody from the surrounding region all flees into that castle, comes into that tower so that they can be safe. The Lord is such a tower for the oppressed. He's a place of protection that none of our enemies can reach. And for those who feel like running, this is the tower to run to. The tower of the Lord will be a sure refuge that you can place your trust in. This is a tower that no enemy can scale. You probably all saw the story a couple months ago of the man who climbed the Devon Tower, that, that really tall, the tallest tower in Oklahoma City. I think we're all surprised that he climbed that. Well, no man can climb the tower of the Lord to attack those who are secure in it. This is a tower that no man can successfully assault. This is a tower that no man can besiege. Because this is a tower of God's protection for those who are oppressed. And we have a sovereign God who is surely powerful, all-powerful and almighty and, and sure to protect us from our enemies. 
This is specifically the refuge that the Lord promises to those who humble themselves before him. Who confess no worthiness or hope in self, but confess all hope and trust in the Lord. Verse 12 says, the Lord does not forget the cry of the humble. It's a horribly sad reality that there are those in this world who have experienced great evil. Evil we would even shudder to think about. And yet you do not know the Lord. There are many oppressed people in this world who have not humbled themselves. Instead, there are oppression. The great evil they have endured in this life has filled their hearts with pride. And they have set up barriers to help. So many people you, you talk to on the street, they have set up barriers in their hearts to help. They trust only in themselves. They have prideful hearts. We must call such people in love to humble their proud hearts. We as a church need to proclaim the hope of the gospel to such people. We should encourage them to look to the Lord even as all others have failed them and abandoned them. We can encourage them with the words that Christ does not forget the humble. That he is a refuge indeed for the oppressed. Christ did not forget Mary and Martha as they mourned the death of Lazarus. He did not forget the blind men who cried out all the more, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Christ did not forget the leper who came to him and said, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Christ does not forget the humble. He does not forget the oppressed. And those who desire such refuge in Christ must be sure that they know the Lord. Verse 10 of our text says, And those who seek who, sorry, who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. I must ask, do you know the Lord? And more specifically, does that knowledge compel you? Does it drive you to indeed trust in him now in the very present? It's very easy uh, especially growing up in the church, to know the Lord. Perhaps you've sat under preaching for years. You've memorized Bible verses. You may have even memorized your catechism. But does the knowledge you have of the Lord move you to trust Him? Or is it merely head knowledge? That works when everything's going well, but when adversity strikes, when you endure oppression at the hands of wicked men, then you don't know what to do. David says that our knowledge of the Lord should move us to trust in Him. 
Those who know your name. Those who truly know God's name and know what God's name means will put their trust in him. A true and right knowledge of the Lord will comfort and strengthen us in adversity because we know God's character. We know our own character and we know the character of sinful men. And we know that God is not like man that he should lie. God does not fail or depart from his promises. If he says he will remember, he will indeed remember. If he has said he will pour out grace upon his people, he will indeed pour out grace upon them. So has the character of the Lord been a comfort to you in distress you know him to be such a bomb? Or has your relationship with the Lord in times of trouble been more of a duty than a trust? You go through the motions of prayer and worship because you know that is what Christians are supposed to do. But you have not found yourself seeking and trusting in the Lord. Well, that characterizes you while God's word encourages you this morning to seek him to seek him today by humbling yourself the Lord will not forsake those who seek him he will not forget those who are humble it could be that some of you have never gone through suffering not gone through any real trials in your life Let me be the first person to tell you that trials will indeed come. Children in this congregation, you will face suffering. You will face death. You will face evil in your life. If you do not trust in the Lord now, do not assume that you will trust him when those trials come. Christ told the parable of the soils. In that parable, he spoke of of the seed that the sower was scattering. Some seed fell on good ground, and those seeds grew and prospered and, and bore fruit. But Christ also spoke of other seed that fell on the stony places, and it sprang up for a little bit. When trials and persecution came, because that seed did not have root, it perished. May that not be the case with your soul when trials and difficulties and sufferings come in this life. But may you trust in the Lord and seek Him today while He may be found. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. May you experientially know that the Lord does not forget the cry of the humble, that he, but that he remembers the oppressed and is a high tower for them. Just as the Lord remembers 
the oppressed. So he also remembers the wicked, and he remembers them in judgment. And this judgment the Lord brings upon the wicked is for the good of the oppressed. It is to be a declaration to those who are enduring oppression of his love and care for them. Notice the language of verse 12. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. God avenges the blood of his people specifically to demonstrate that he does not forget. This vengeance is a specific reference to the heinous sin of murder. It echoes the sentiment that we find in Genesis 9 verse 5. Genesis 9, verse 5, it reads, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For for in the image of God he made man. Just as the blood of Abel cried out from the ground, so the blood of God's people cries out from the ground to him. And he hears the cries of the blood and remembers his people. He remembers them by bringing judgment upon the wicked. And we see that exact same sentiment picked up in verses 17 and 18. There we read, the wicked shall be turned into hell. And all the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall shall not perish forever. The psalmist uses vivid language in these verses to describe the judgment of the wicked. The word hell is literally the word sheol. Now sheol is the generic Hebrew word for death. It's, It's the word quite often translated as grave. Everyone goes down to Sheol. We are all dust, and to dust we return. Both the righteous and the wicked go down to Sheol. But notice how David changes that phrase in this psalm. Does not say, let the wicked go down to Sheol. Instead, He says that they are turned into Sheol. This is where I think it's really helpful that the translator translate the word Sheol as the word hell here. It gets at the picture of their judgment. It describes the horrendous consequences of a godless life. Whereas a believer turns to God and is transformed after the image of God, Young Gali turns into a complete perversion of who they are. They are turned the ultimate picture of judgment. They are turned into Sheol. They are turned into death and hell. Striking that, that word turn here is quite often the word that the prophets use to describe true repentance. It's a word that the prophets use to tell people to turn to God, to repent of their ways and trust in Him. The turning of the wicked into hell. 
as an apt description of their judgment. Why is this judgment brought against them? It is because the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. And I believe this helps us understand what is meant by those earlier statements in this psalm. Were you troubled a little bit by some of those statements that we find in this psalm? We had some powerful statements of the justice of God. Just look at verse 5. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Look at verse 6. So enemy destructions are finished forever. Even verse 15. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. These statements could potentially trouble us or at the very least sound hollow in our ears, because this is simply not our experience. David speaks as though these judgments have already happened, that God's judgments have been executed. Yet our day-to-day experience is that the wicked have free reign. People in positions of power continue to advance godless, perverted agendas. Abortion rights are advanced. Babies are regularly murdered in the womb. The LGBTQ agenda continues to grow in strength and power. The rights of Christians are taken away. When cases are brought against a civil magistrate, justice is not upheld. Sentences against wicked men are not passed, or if they are passed, they have very light sentences. Sentences that do not comport with justice. Women and children continue to be sexually trafficked. People continue to be murdered and abused. God's people are imprisoned and killed in foreign lands. How can David say that the Lord has rebuked the nations when nations continue to rebel against the crown rights of King Jesus? How can he say that the Lord has destroyed the wicked when the wicked continue to live and even thrive? How can David say that the Lord has blotted out their name forever? The name of wicked men and women continues to be praised and exalted. How can he say all of this? Well, David can say this because he is so sure that God will bring justice, that God is a God of justice and will bring justice upon the wicked, that he speaks as though it has already happened. It's not some mistake of David getting his Hebrew tenses, his Hebrew verb tenses mixed up. And instead, this is, this is actually something you see regularly in Scripture. And there's even a name for it. It's called the prophetic perfect, something that is so sure to come to pass. It is as though It has already come to pass. It is described in the past tense. This describes David's immense faith in the justice of the Lord, in the character of the Lord. David endured much oppression, especially in the early days of his life as he ran from Saul. was frequently persecuted by by 
the tribes of Israel on the run. And yet David has immense faith in the Lord, that the Lord had not forgotten him, but that the Lord remembered him. He remembers those who are oppressed, and that the Lord would indeed bring judgment upon the wicked. This describes for us what the strength of our faith should be when we consider the justice of, the, of God. We need to have the faith see that their ultimate destruction is sure. And notice the contrast that is set up between those who trust in the Lord and those who are enemies of the Lord. It is the wicked who are forgotten. In verse 6, we read, O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. The memory of the cities that the wicked destroyed. Oh, the, you know, the wicked would use that. Oh, think of all the things I've done, all the valiant deeds. You can almost imagine Saul. We're going to be considering him, Lord willing, next week. Saul dragging the men and women off to prison, boasting before the Pharisees. Well, I've, I've gotten this person. I've, I've gotten that person. I've, I've, here's my whole list of people that I have dragged off. The wicked could use, well, we've destroyed all these cities. Look at us. Look how powerful and mighty we are. Yet, David says that their memory has perished. Memory of all the wicked deeds that the wicked have done, that has perished. They have no cause to boast in anything anymore. Because the Lord endures forever. And he has prepared his throne for judgment. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. The wicked are forgotten. The Lord does not forget the cry of the humble. Verse 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. Those who forget God will be forgotten, but those who trust in the Lord will indeed be remembered. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. The Lord remembers the oppressed, and the Lord remembers the wicked. And so David remembers the glory of God in this psalm. God delivers the poor and needy. He delivers those who are in trouble so that he might be praised. And how fitting this is. The Lord should receive the praise, for he is our only redeemer. He is our only hope. Notice verses 13 and 14. Here David cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. David is in the midst 
of trouble. He cries out to the Lord that the Lord would remember him in his trouble, that the Lord would show him mercy. David prays that specifically so that he might have opportunity to praise God, so that he might have more reason to give God the glory that is due his name. When we pray to the Lord to deliver us, we can often pray for deliverance from whatever we're going through so that we can return to the easy life that we had before. Maybe it's so we can have a guilt-free conscience so so that we can just go on with life. This shows how man-centered we often are, how focused we are on our own comfort and ease in this life, how we so often worship ourselves. But David has a God-centered approach to his oppression and his deliverance. He prays that God would deliver him so that he might have even more opportunity to praise God for who he is. You who lift me up from the gates of death, save me that I might tell your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. David longs to to come into the church, to be with the people of God and celebrate and rejoice in this wonder and splendor of his salvation and wonder and splendor of his gods. We are delivered from the gates of death so that we might praise in the gates of of Zion. We are delivered from the curse of our sin so that we might rejoice in the blessings of life. This is specifically to happen in the context of the church. The gates of the daughter of Zion is a reference to the assembling of God's people in corporate worship. One of the great tasks that we are called to when we gather each Sunday is to speak of what God has done for us. And you might wonder how we are to do that as believers when it's either Bill or myself who lead in the worship of God. But this is one of the beauties, one of the real beauties of congregational singing. In our congregational singing, we are not just singing to, our, to the Lord. We, we are certainly singing to the Lord first and foremost, praising Him. But as we open our mouths, And sing, we are also speaking and declaring the truths of God's word to one another. We are making these words that we find in the book of Psalms our own words and declaring with David or or whatever the psalmist, whoever the psalmist is, that this is true of us, that God has delivered me from the gates of death, that I might praise him. We're saying, I rejoice in your salvation, O Lord. I rejoice in who you are and what you have done for me. When we sing with David, saying, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing to your name, O Most High. We are not just repeating some historical words made by some king of Israel thousands of years ago. 
Either we are making David's words of praise our own words of praise. We are declaring to each person gathered here that, God, uh, that David's words are true of us as well. We are telling of his marvelous works. And this is one reason that congregational singing is never to be replaced with a choir or a worship band. All of God's people are to have the rich experience of, of coming within the gates of Zion and proclaiming the praise of him who has delivered us from the gates of death. Those marvelous works that David speaks of in, in the opening verses of Psalm 9 are specific references to God's redemptive works. And as we sing these words, we should be calling to mind Christ's redemptive works on our behalf. We should be calling to mind the work of Jesus Christ as he has saved us. As Christ is the refuge for the oppressed. He is our refuge in times of trouble. Christ does not forget the cries of the humble. He does not forget the needy. He does not allow the expectation of the poor perish forever. And it is Christ who reigns even now to subdue all his and our enemies. God remembers his people because his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, died for the sins of his people. So as we sing Psalm 9 this month, let us remember that God remembers let us call to mind this glorious gospel truth, even as we endure oppression in this life, as we are needy and sorrowful. Let us remember that God remembers his people. Let us pray. Father in our God, what beautiful words for us to hear that you do indeed remember. Lord, there are many difficulties and trials in this life. Many of those who are gathered here this morning can attest to the difficult trials that they have gone through in this life. Even the, the doubts and the fears that come with those trials. Yet, Lord, we pray that we would indeed know that you remember. That you remember the oppression of your people. That you hear the cries of those who are poor and needy. And delight to shower your people with grace. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of judgment. That we can know the, the, the wicked will be indeed judged in, in this world. Lord, we pray that that would not lift our hearts up in, in pride or haughtiness, that we would humbly consider that reality, knowing that we ourselves deserve your judgment. We, are, we ourselves deserve your wrath. But you have delivered us from the gates of death. You have delivered us from all our sins. 
so that we might praise you in the gates of Zion. Lord, strengthen our worship of you, even as we meditate upon these glorious truths. May we sing praise the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.